0: Good morning everybody. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We um, are going to start today with uh, a prize winner, I think, for our um, Cook, Eat, Learn program's monthly, um, monthly trivia question. And Karen Hike is going to um, tell us who won and why. Oh, I have to draw the list. From the the two entries. From the two entries, which tells you your proportional chances of winning if you enter are good. Okay. Um, So thank you for coming. Today's um, topic was eating out on special occasions in advance of the holidays. Tips for healthy eating and mindful eating um, during a time when there's... um, lots of food around. And last week's topic was fats and oils. And our question was name a healthy fat and a less healthy fat. So our winner um, is Jean Strawbridge from the section of occupational environmental medicine with the answer, healthy, a healthy fat is olive oil and a less healthy fat is lard. So your, your more healthy fats are your mono and polyunsaturated fats, fish oils, walnuts. Um, and your less healthy fats so are your saturated. We say no trans fats if possible. So, Gene, um, we will be delivering a bottle of olive oil to your office. And uh, next week, the trivia will be eating out on special occasions. So, you might want to do some pre studying. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Well, good morning to
1: everyone. And thank you all for coming out uh, early for a talk about pituitary medicine. Uh, our our guest speaker today is Elizabeth Lawson, uh, MD, who is an assistant professor at the Mass General Hospital and at uh, Harvard Medical School. And uh, we had a wonderful talk from Elizabeth yesterday, and a wonderful dinner with her. And I'm sure you're going to be really uh, educated by this uh, by this. Uh, lecture today. Um, She got her MD degree from Harvard Medical School in 2002 and then trained at the Mass General Hospital uh, for her residency and her internship and residency. She was a fellow at the Mass General in endocrinology until 2008, and in there she also did a couple of years of research fellowship. Uh, So she's really very well trained in in both endocrinology and in research. Um, She became an assistant professor of medicine at at Mass General and at uh, Harvard Medical School in 2011. She's in their neuroendocrine unit, which does all of the pituitary work for the Mass General, but she is actually the director of the Interdisciplinary Oxytocin Research Program. Uh, We as endocrinologists don't know all that much about oxytocin, and she educated us yesterday, and she's obviously opening up a actually a new field uh, with oxytocin research, and it's really quite fascinating. Uh, Her research centers on the connection between endocrine dysfunction and psychopathology, Uh, for example, anorexia nervosa and oxytocin's role there. So it's really exciting stuff, and we expect to see really a lot of interesting things coming out in a number of years. She has numerous first-author publications uh, in endocrine and in psychiatric journals, and she's a busy person being the uh, principal investigator in about seven research uh, grants. So uh, we're really delighted to have her speak to us today about uh, non-functioning pituitary tumors. Thanks.
2: Well, thank you for that very kind introduction. It's really fun to be here. Um, and today, what I'd like to do is to use a case-based approach to review the differential diagnosis of cellar lesions, the complications of pituitary adenomas, uh, particularly mass effect and hormone secretion, and the evaluation and management of the non-functioning adenoma uh, and hypopituitarism. So this is a case of a 35-year-old woman who presents with headaches, fatigue, and amenorrhea, a head MRI is done and it shows this large cellar mass. So what's the most likely diagnosis? Is this malignancy, a craniopharyngioma, pituitary adenoma, or an abscess? The responses are coming in. Okay. Let's see. Fantastic. So, <laughs> so well done. Okay. Um, so the answer is the pituitary adenoma. And the differential for cellar masses is quite broad. It includes benign tumors, including pituitary adenomas, craniopharyngiomas, and meningiomas, but also pituitary hyperplasia, malignancy, cystic lesions, infection, hypophysitis, and carotid AV fistulas or aneurysms. The most common diagnosis of a cellar mass is the benign pituitary adenoma. And there are a number of different types of adenomas. The most common is the lactotroph-derived adenoma, or the prolactinoma, which results in prolactin secretion. Uh, The the clinically non-functioning gonadotroph-derived tumor is the second most common, and that's really the focus of this talk. Less common are somatotroph tumors, which cause acromegaly, and corticotroph tumors, which cause Cushing's disease, and very rarely we see thyrotroph uh, tumors that cause hyperthyroidism. So with this patient, in addition to a detailed history and physical exam, what would you recommend at this point? Would you send her to surgery? Would you recommend a hormone evaluation and urgent visual field testing, proton beam radiation therapy, or thyroid hormone replacement? And the answer, this is fantastic. Okay, so hormone evaluation and urgent visual field testing is correct. Um, This patient may well end up in the OR, but first we want to do a comprehensive hormone evaluation um, and, and send them to an ophthalmologist for visual field testing. So when we think about the complications of a large cellar mass like this, we need to think about the anatomy and what structures are adjacent and could be compressed. So on the left, you see an MRI with a normal pituitary gland. It's just a narrow band between the carotid arteries. There's a lot of black space around it. And on the right is our patient's MRI that shows a large mass and very little black space. It's been completely obliterated. So it's pressing on adjacent structures. So what are those structures? Well, in the center here in this diagram is the pituitary gland, and right above it is the optic chiasm. To the sides are the cavernous sinuses, which house the internal carotid arteries and cranial nerves 3, 4, and 6. So our patient's mass is pressing on the optic chiasm. And so one major concern is for the, the risk of a visual field deficit. You can also see that there's tumor surrounding the carotid artery, and that means that this tumor has invaded the cavernous sinus. Um, If this is a benign pituitary adenoma, we do not expect any compressive symptoms from cavernous sinus invasion. So if this patient has uh, a cranial neuropathy, then this is not going to be an adenoma, and we need to think about other potential causes. The third structure that we think about is the pituitary itself and the pituitary stock, which can be compressed, and that can cause abnormalities in hormone secretion. So this is a normal visual field test. The black dots are the physiologic blind spots, and these are our patient's visual field tests. She has dramatic peripheral vision loss. This is a bitemporal hemianopsia, which is a classic finding for patients who have these large masses that are compressing the optic chiasm. <clears throat> so our patient has a bitemporal hemianopsia. She does not have any cranial nerve deficits on exam. So the next step will be to evaluate the hypothalamic pituitary axes, looking for either hypo or hypersecretion of hormones. So I'll start with the posterior pituitary hormones, um, because oxytocin is my favorite. Uh, and both oxytocin and vasopressin are produced in the hypothalamus and they are carried along the axons of neurons and they're stored in the posterior pituitary where they can be, re- be released into the peripheral circulation. There is no known oxytocin deficiency and this is something that we're actively investigating. There, there is a vasodepress- vasopressin deficiency, diabetes insipidus. Um, As you know, vasopressin is important because it allows the kidneys to hold on to water. So these patients who have a deficiency in vasopressin present with polyuria, polydipsia, classically the urge to drink cold water. Pituitary adenomas do not cause diabetes insipidus. So if this patient came in and had diabetes insipidus, then we should be thinking about other causes. We should be thinking about supracellular masses, infiltrative, and malignant processes. Now, surgery for any kind of cellular lesion can result in either transient or permanent diabetes insipidus. So how do we make the diagnosis? We want to get simultaneous um, serum, as well as urine testing. And if there's an elevated plasma sodium, but inappropriately dilute urine osms, less than that of the plasma osms, either on random samples or after a few hours of abstaining from fluid, that's diagnostic of diabetes insipidus. We actually rarely need to do formal water deprivation testing to make this diagnosis. If the urine osms are high, Over 600, that's clearly normal. This patient can concentrate their urine. They don't have diabetes insipidus And if the urine osms are between the plasma osms and 600 in the presence of elevated Sodium that's consistent with partial DI But it's really important to remember that not all patients who have polyuria and polydipsia have diabetes insipidus Even if they have pituitary disease, so you really need to make that diagnosis before treating the patient Typically, uh, we start with a dosing of a puff of DDAVP nasal spray before bed. It's a dose that works for most patients and allows them to get a good night's sleep. Some people need higher doses or more frequent dosing. If, if the if people need lower doses, oral DDAVP is a good choice because it's less potent. So now I'd like to move to the anterior pituitary axis, starting with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. <clears throat> As a reminder, the hypothalamus produces CRH, corticotropin releasing hormone, which stimulates the pituitary to release ACTH or corticotropin, and that then circulates through the bloodstream to the adrenal glands where it stimulates cortisol production. And then there's sort of a classic feedback mechanism where cortisol inhibits uh, the central production of CRH and ACTH, and this is a consistent pattern with these hypothalamic pituitary axes. So central adrenal insufficiency is due to abnormal production of CRH by the hypothalamus or ACTH by the pituitary and it results in reduced cortisol production. The signs and symptoms include weakness, dizziness from orthostatic hypotension, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, hyponatremia. So what test might be useful in diagnosing adrenal insufficiency? Twenty four hour urine free cortisol, eight AM cortisol, late night salivary cortisol, or the dexamethasone CRH test. <clears throat> Good. So the 8 a.m. serum cortisol test can be used. The others are actually totally useless in diagnosing adrenal insufficiency. We can use them to look for cortisol excess, but not insufficiency. So why is the 8 a.m. serum cortisol useful? Um, It's because cortisol has a diurnal rhythm with the highest levels in the morning, early morning, So you're most likely to get a level that demonstrates that the patient has adrenal reserve. So if you get a level of more than 18, you know that patient is not adrenally insufficient. And the morning is the time that you're most likely to see that. It also would be abnormal in the morning to have a really low cortisol level. So if you get a level that's less than 3, that's diagnostic of adrenal insufficiency at 8 a.m., but not later in the day when you can actually have low levels, and that's considered normal. A lot of the time we get levels in the middle, uh, which really don't help us, and so we need to do further testing. So our patient had an 8 a.m. serum cortisol that was not detectable, and that's diagnostic of adrenal insufficiency. There's an important caveat, though, when you're looking at cortisol levels in the blood. Um, And that's that what we're interested in is what's free cortisol, but what we're actually measuring is cortisol that's free and active, but also cortisol that's bound to cortisol-binding globulin and circulating in the bloodstream. Um, And there are conditions where cortisol binding globulin levels can be abnormal And then it's very difficult to interpret a serum cortisol test and the key one to know about is women on oral contraceptive pills They have high CBG levels and so if you Had a morning cortisol in a young woman who was on oral contraceptive pills and it was 19 You cannot assume that she does not have adrenal insufficiency So you can be be fooled in that case So the other test that we commonly use is the court stim test. We check a baseline cortisol, and ACTH, and then we give 250 micrograms of IV cosentropin, which is synthetic ACTH. And then we check a 60-minute cortisol. So the first useful value is the ACTH. So if you end up with a patient who has adrenal insufficiency and they have an ACTH level that is really high, you know it's not a central problem. The problem is the adrenal glands, and that's why there's a normal feedback system intact and ACTH rises. But if you have a patient who has adrenal insufficiency and they have a low ACTH or an inappropriately normal ACTH, then the process is central. It's coming from the hypothalamus or the pituitary. So our patient actually didn't get a baseline ACTH. Um, She had a, a morning cortisol that was undetectable, and a 60-minute cortisol of 5.3, where normal is greater than 18. So she clearly has adrenal insufficiency, and we can assume in the setting of a large cellar mass that it's central. So in terms of the pitfalls of the court stim test, one that's it's important to know is that you can't use this if you think that the patient has acute uh, adrenal insufficiency that is central in origin. So why is that? Well, ACTH is trophic to the adrenal glands. So if you have someone who has chronic central adrenal insufficiency because of a big mass like this, what happens is that in the absence of ACTH, the adrenal glands atrophy. And so when you give cosentropin or synthetic ACTH, the adrenals fail to respond. And that's why they fail the court stem test. But if you have someone who comes into the ER and they have some kind of an acute event, acute apoplexy, um, and you use this test, their adrenals won't have had time to atrophy, and they'll respond normally to cosentropin. So you can't use it with acute central adrenal insufficiency. The second caveat we already talked about, that cortisol is bound to CBG, so you need to think carefully when you interpret these tests in women on oral contraceptive pills. And the third issue is that the assay for cortisol cross-reacts with synthetic glucocorticoids. So you need to make sure that the glucocorticoids have cleared the system before you do this testing. So sheep does not have any significant signs or symptoms of adrenal insufficiency. What do you want to start at this time? Prednisone, four milligrams every morning. Hydrocortisone, 25 milligrams every morning. Hydrocortisone 10 and 5 in divided doses, along with fludrocortisone or dexamethasone 2 milligrams twice a day. Questions are getting a little trickier. Okay. All right. So there's a lot of controversy about this one. It's getting more interesting. Um, and the answer is prednisone, 4 milligrams every morning. So hydrocortisone, 25, is a reasonable dose, but hydrocortisone's short-acting. You need to, you need to give it multiple times a day. Hydrocortisone, 10, and 5, totally reasonable, but this patient doesn't need fludrocortisone because central ad- adrenal insufficiency is not going to affect aldosterone production. If she had primary adrenal insufficiency, where the adrenals were the problem, then this would be appropriate. And dexamethasone, two milligrams twice a day, is not the answer because it's a very long-acting drug and it's a huge dose. So that would be super physiologic. So uh, we give these patients daily glucocorticoids, prednisone, three to five milligrams in the morning, hydrocortisone, 15 to 25 in divided dosing, and then we titrate down the dose to get people on the lowest possible dose that they feel good on, really to minimize the side effects. We always make sure that they understand the sick rules uh, so that they stay out of trouble. <clears throat> so, for example, they need to know that when their body's under stress, if they have a fever, they need to increase the dose. And typically 10 to 15 milligrams of prednisone is, is adequate Uh, And and people need to know that's a short-term solution. So if they're on that dose for more than a few days, they need to notify us. Um, Higher IV doses are required under stress. So it's very important that all their caregivers really understand this diagnosis. If they can't hold down their prednisone or hydrocortisone, they need to go to the ER to get intravenous glucocorticoids and they should have a medic alert bracelet. Okay, so next is the thyroid axis. TRH um, is secreted by the hypothalamus. It stimulates TSH or thyrotropin production by the pituitary. TSH then circulates to the thyroid gland where it stimulates uh, the production of T3 and T4. And again, there's this feedback mechanism centrally. Central hypothyroidism is due to abnormal TRH secretion by the hypothalamus, or TSH secretion by the pituitary. And the signs and symptoms uh, are the same as primary hypothyroidism, except there's no goiter. So fatigue, apathy, weight gain uh, can all occur. However, oftentimes you don't see these symptoms because they're masked by other pituitary insufficiencies, like adrenal insufficiency. The diagnosis of central hypothyroidism cannot be made by measuring TSH levels, which is what we use in primary hypothyroidism. And that's because the TSH can be low, it can be normal, it can be high in central hypothyroidism. You might expect, because of feedback, that it would be low <clears throat> or inappropriately normal in the setting of a low free T4, but sometimes uh, the TSH that's produced can actually be bioinactive. So you need to measure the free T4, both to make the diagnosis, and also um, in terms of following following the patient and figuring out the appropriate dosing. The TSH is never useful. So our patient has a TSH of 1.3, which is normal, and a free T4 of 0.7, which is low. She has central hypothyroidism. So which option would you choose for our patient? Start 50 micrograms of IV levothyroxine now, start 25 micrograms of levothyroxine in three days, start 50 micrograms PO now, or start 75 micrograms PO in three days, or if going to surgery, wait and reassess postoperatively. Okay. Again, a little bit of controversy. So um, the answer is start 75 micrograms of PO levothyroxine in three days. Or if she's going to surgery, just wait and reassess postoperatively because oftentimes decompression can result in um, normal hormone secretion. So why do we wait three days? It's because uh, levothyroxine increases the metabolism of cortisol, so you can precipitate an adrenal crisis if you don't have the patient adequately replaced on glucocorticoids first. So we treat central hypothyroidism with levothyroxine. We monitor the free T4, not the TSH, and we're very careful to make sure that the adrenal insufficiency is adequately treated before we start this. Next is the reproductive axis. GnRH from the hypothalamus stimulates the production of the gonadotropins, LH, and FSH from the pituitary. These circulate through the the bloodstream and act at the ovaries in women and the testes in men to stimulate the production of gonadal steroids. Again, there's feedback loops. Central hypogonadism is due to abnormal GnRH production by the hypothalamus, or LH or FSH secretion by the pituitary, and it results in reduced production of gonadal steroids. In women, they typically present with amenorrhea, or infertility, and in men, uh, typically with low libido. So if you have a female with a mass like this, and she's having regular menstrual cycles, you don't need to evaluate for central hypogonadism. She doesn't have it. But if she is amenorrheic, Or um, if it's a male, we check an FSH and an LH. And if those are low or inappropriately normal, meaning not high in the setting of low estrogen or a low morning testosterone, then that patient has central hypogonadism. We always check thyroid function tests and prolactin because these can cause abnormalities and these can cause a similar picture. So our patient is amenorrheic. She has normal FSH, LH, and estradiol, which could be consistent with central hypogonadism. But she also has central hypothyroidism and mildly elevated prolactin um, of 27, where normal is up to 20. So the etiology is unclear, um, and we would wait to reassess her reproductive axis after decompression of the pituitary. We treat uh, men with hypogonadism with testosterone replacement, typically either IM or uh, topical preparations. Um, and the, the topical give a more sort of even uh, levels of, of testosterone. They have that benefit. The, the IM formulation is less expensive, but it gives super peak testosterone levels, and and so patients are more at risk for some of the side effects like erythrocytosis and prostate stimulation. If fertility is desired, um, we refer them for gonadotropin therapy. In women who are of reproductive age, there's really no great data on estrogen and progestin replacement. And the WHI data that is really geared towards postmenopausal women can't be extrapolated to think about um, young women with hypopituitarism. So we replace estrogen and uh, progestin with the goal of restoring a normal hormonal milieu. And if patients are interested in fertility, we refer them for gonadotropin therapy. For women of postmenopausal age, it's really a similar decision that you make for women who don't have pituitary disease, Um, keeping in mind that some intracranial tumors, for example some meningiomas, will have estrogen receptors, so you need to be thoughtful about whether or not um, estrogen therapy could be contraindicated. So the final hormone deficiency that I'd like to talk about is growth hormone deficiency. Um, GHRH, which is produced by the hypothalamus, stimulates GH production, growth hormone production, by the pituitary. And growth hormone acts at the liver to increase IGF-1. So growth hormone deficiency is due to abnormal GHRH, or growth hormone secretion, and it results in decreased production of growth hormone in IGF-1. These patients may have bone loss, increased cardiovascular risk, central adiposity, And muscle loss. And to make the diagnosis, there are a couple of options. If you have someone who has at least three other anterior pituitary deficiencies and a low IGF-1, then they have growth hormone deficiency, too. Otherwise, you need to pursue provocative testing with an insulin tolerance test or any other number of tests. And basically, the idea behind these is that you stimulate Um, the pituitary to produce growth hormone, and if people don't have the expected increase, then you know that they're growth hormone deficient. So our patient had three anterior pituitary deficiencies and a low IGF-1, so we know she has growth hormone deficiency. And we, again, would reassess after decompression of the pituitary, which can result in recovery of these pituitary axes, Um, And we would do testing only if replacement would be considered. So growth hormone treatment is actually optional. And there are contraindications, including malignancy, diabetic retinopathy, and a growing uh, cellar lesion. So if a patient doesn't have a contraindication, then we talk about the potential benefits and risks. So the benefits include improved body composition, cardiovascular risk markers, bone density, and quality of life, and the potential risks include the theoretical risk of stimulation of active malignancy and worsening of glucose control. We monitor these patients for side effects of growth hormone excess, and we follow IGF-1 levels with the goal of middle of the normal range. We follow hemoglobin A1c, and we ask them to keep up to date with age-appropriate cancer screening. And if there is any concern for a cancer, we stop the growth hormone. So of the following, which is the most likely diagnosis? TSH-secreting adenoma, non-functioning pituitary adenoma, Cushing's, or acromegaly? Excellent. Okay, that one that one wasn't the, the hardest. Um, so actually, if we had prolacti- prolactinoma in there, that would have been the right answer because it's more common, but it wasn't one of the options. Um, so we're left with the clinically non-functioning gonadotroph tumor, which would be the most likely of the remaining ones. We've also actually ruled out all of the others, and I'll tell you how we've done that. First, I want to talk about whether or not this is a prolactinoma. So women typically will present with amenorrhea, infertility, galactorrhea. Men also can present with hypogonadism. <clears throat> uh, sometimes they come in with gynecomastia. Um, less common for men is galactorrhea. And we check a prolactin. If it's a big tumor, we check a prolactin in dilution. And that's because the assay that's used is an antibody-based assay. And these tumors can have extremely high levels of prolactin. And the assay can basically become overwhelmed and and give you false low reads. So if you have a patient who has a tumor that's a centimeter or bigger, you need to make sure that the prolactin is checked in dilution. And it's important to figure out whether this is a prolactinoma, because it's really the only thing where medical therapy would be first line, and you wouldn't send the patient to the OR. So our patient has a prolactin level that's mildly elevated. How do we know if this is a prolactinoma or if this is just stock effect? And what is stock effect? So normally, prolactin release is under the control of dopamine that's coming down the stock and into the anterior pituitary and inhibiting the release of prolactin. So stock effect can occur when you have a tumor that's compressing the, the stalk and preventing dopamine from providing that negative inhibition to prolactin release. And so you can have mild to moderate elevations of prolactin in that case. A prolactinoma is a big tumor that makes uh, much higher levels of prolactin. So, our patient with this mild elevation of 27, we know that's due to stalk effect and not a prolactinoma, where le- levels would be much higher in the hundreds to thousands. So what about acromegaly? I said we've ruled this out. How did we do it? Um, There's some pictures of some of our acromegalic patients here. They tend to have coarsened facial features, a broad nose, enlarged hands and feet. They can present with sweats, joint aches, carpal tunnel from the swelling. And the way to make the diagnosis is to get an IGF-1. And if the IGF-1 is elevated, they have acromegaly. But our patient didn't have any signs or symptoms of acromegaly and her igf1 level was actually low so she does not have acromegaly what about cushing's disease these patients classically present with weight gain central obesity they can have wide violaceous striae from the rapid accumulation of fat and from thin skin proximal muscle weakness hypertension diabetes so if we have any reason to suspect that a patient may have cushing's then We do 24-hour urine-free cortisol testing, late-night salivary cortisol testing. But our patient has adrenal insufficiency, so she does not have Cushing's. TSH-secreting adenomas are rare. These patients present with hyperthyroidism. They have elevated free T4, T4, T3 levels with a non-suppressed TSH. Our patient has central hypothyroidism, so this is not a TSH-secreting adenoma. So what we have is a 35-year-old woman with a large, non-functioning cellar mass compressing the optic chiasm with bitemporal hemianopsia and anterior panhypopituitarism. So what do we recommend? Should we send her to surgery, radiation therapy? Should we start a dopamine agonist or a long-acting somatostatin analog? fantastic. Um, So we should send her to surgery. Surgical indications include large, typically over one centimeter masses, or masses that are enlarging, involvement of the optic chiasm, hypopituitarism, and hormone hypersecretion, except for prolactinomas, where medical therapy is first line. Some masses can be observed if they're small, or stable, if there's no involvement of the optic chiasm, no hypopituitarism, and no hormone hypersecretion. And medical therapy is first line for prolactinomas that require treatment. So those are prolactinomas that are either big or enlarging um, or in patients who have amenorrhea or interest in fertility. We also consider medical therapy in cases where surgery would typically pursue, be pursued, but the, the can the the patient is not a good surgical candidate, or if there's lack of access to a great pituitary surgeon, then you might start with medical therapy. So for our patient, uh, we recommended starting prednisone now and referred her to an expert pituitary surgeon for urgent surgery because of the visual field field cuts. And you can see the post-operative MRI shows now a lot of black space in that area. Um, The optic chiasm has been decompressed, and um, there's a little bit of tissue around uh, the carotid artery, so there may be some residual tumor. The pathology did, in fact, stain for a pituitary, uh, did show a pituitary adenoma that stained for FSH beta. Now, after surgery, we need to be careful to monitor for the development of either SIADH or diabetes insipidus, So we follow our patients for two weeks. We follow sodium levels as outpatients, and we instruct them um, that they need to be careful about drinking to thirst. That means if they're thirsty, they can drink. If they're not thirsty, we don't want them drinking. Um, We educate them about signs and symptoms of SIDH or DI so that they can notify us if there's any problem. Excuse me. Um, They're also at risk for developing hypopituitarism, even if they didn't start with it. So everyone who has pituitary surgery goes out of the hospital on glucocorticoid replacement. Um, And then six to eight weeks after surgery, we bring them back and do a comprehensive evaluation for um, pituitary hormones, including a court stim test, looking at thyroid function tests, IGF-1, and gonadal function. And there's about a 50% chance of recovering pituitary function after relief of mass effect. So our patient had no evidence of diabetes insipidus or SIADH perioperatively. She had excellent recovery of visual fields. And when we saw her at six weeks postoperatively, she wasn't getting her periods yet, but she had no other evidence of hypopituitarism on her laboratory evaluation. At three months after surgery, her menstrual cycles returned. And we see her annually at the Neuroendocrine Clinical Center for monitoring. So what I've tried to do is use a case to review the differential diagnosis of cellar lesions, the complications of pituitary adenomas, and the evaluation and management of non-functioning adenomas and hypopituitarism. And I'm happy to take any questions.
1: Really nice uh, presentation. That's a huge amount of information you give in such a beautiful <coughs> fashion. So, we have some questions. Why don't we start with William? I've got two questions, but we have time. Um, how, how often did the uh, adenomas recur after surgery and or require additional intervention? And then the other question is what regulates the percentages of, uh, of adenomas that you get, the non functioning versus is it related to basic islet? Uh, Specific
2: cell mass or number of a particular. Is there a reason why prolactinomas are so common? Right. No, I think it's a great question. I don't think we have the answer to that. I don't think we know why prolactinomas are are more common um, than Cushing's, for example. Um, but I think it's a really interesting area of, uh, of interest. And you know, in terms of um, recurrence, uh, I think the literature is not totally clear on it, but we see probably 10%. Any other questions? Yeah.
1: Um, what controls the diurnal variation of cortisol, and what do you do by somebody who does shift work?
2: Uh, excellent question. Um, in terms of the control, um, you know, I think it's uh, the pineal gland that's involved in sort of diurnal variation. And um, the, the shift workers are tricky, and what we typically do is we can't use the late-night salivary cortisols um, for those folks when we're thinking about Cushing's evaluation, um, and so we end up relying more on 24-hour urine cortisol for those. Um, and again, if you're, if you're trying to get – I think a court, in terms of evaluating for adrenal insufficiency, a court stim test would make more sense than an 8 a.m. cortisol.
1: I have a quick question to ask you, which is: uh, with these patients who have growth hormone deficiency, it's always uh, an issue of whether you're going to give them growth hormone or not, because a lot of the benefit is subjective. What's your experience with growth hormone uh, replacement? Do you find most patients appreciate a benefit, or most of the time are you just treating a number, which is the idea? For them?
2: It really varies, um, and not everyone wants to be on growth hormone. It's an injection that people need to take. Some people have absolutely no interest in that. Um, I. Have patients who we start on growth hormone and they don't feel anything. Um, and those patients, you know, depending on why they started it, so if they started it for quality of life, then we'll just stop it. If they started it because they have bone loss and they're interested in um, protecting their bones, then we'll sort of follow bone density to decide whether or not to, to continue it. Um, Some people start it and immediately just feel so much better. So it really depends, it's very dependent on the person. You mentioned the um, the difference in risk benefit decision making about hormone replacement, about pronatal hormone replacement for
0: women based on age. And I'm wondering if there's a similar consideration for men and how you would discuss with men the risk benefits for older
2: men. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. I think. I think that you know the the range of testosterone that's considered normal is also sort of changes with age, um so it's a little bit trickier with older men. I think in younger men it's it's very clear that if someone has testosterone deficiency, we replace it um, and really, the main goal from our standpoint is protection of bones um, but also energy um, sex drive in older men um I think that we typically will still replace, but we're replacing to much lower levels.
1: You mentioned the concept of adrenal atrophy, and you get that in impacting on your ACT or cortisone stem test.
2: How fast does that occur? Do we have any understanding of uh, yeah. that's used as a mark, could be a marker for how long the person's had the adenoma? It can take, um, kind of six to eight weeks for the adrenals to atrophy. And that's why we wait six to eight weeks before we do our um, post-operative court stem test. Yes? Would your approach to an incidental pituitary tumor be different? And
1: how would you follow that long
2: term? Um, Good question, because we do often find these incidentally. But if I had the same sort of mass that, we're, that we looked at, I'd followed it in exactly the same way. So we do the, the same evaluation. And then long-term? So you find that it's non-secretory, it's a little tumor. Do you repeat MRIs ever, do you repeat testing ever? We do, we do. So um, we follow patients over time, and most of our patients we sort of follow throughout <laughs> their lifetime. Um, this patient uh, actually several years later um, you know we followed her MRIs every year Um, several years later that area around the cavernous sinus around the the carotid artery started to grow Um, and so she ended up needing radiation therapy um, because it was in an area that wasn't surgically accessible Um, we continued to follow her and you know with A year later, got another MRI, and the tumor was actually shrinking, which we often see after radiation therapy. Um, After radiation, people are at risk for developing hypopituitarism. Now, remember, all of her pituitary hormones had recovered, Um, but gradually, she actually developed uh, adrenal insufficiency, central hypothyroidism, and growth hormone deficiency. So um, we're sort of... Replacing those and, and, and following her for that. So these tend to be patients who we follow the long term. Initially, we, we check MRIs fairly frequently, um, so on an annual basis, and when things are stable, we, we can s- sort of lengthen the interval between MRIs.
1: But for the incidental microadenoma, do you follow them
2: yearly as well? I mean, that's like 100% of people who have. Yeah. Right. No, I think it's it's a it's a difficult question because it is so common. But we do follow patients with um, microadenomas um, initially, sort of monitoring to make sure it doesn't grow. Um, but also, it sort of depends on what the endocrine evaluation is and whether there's um, anything going on there. So typically, we, we you know monitor it to make sure it's not growing, and then you can really sort of reduce the frequency. Yes.
0: Very nice talk, uh, good demonstration of non-functioning tumor, but actually Thank you. we can call it gonadotrope tumor because when you do the staining, the positive for FSH,
2: mm-hmm.
0: then, right? many of the incidence of pituitary tumor, black turn to be higher than non-functioning just because basically <laughs> you don't have a quality, most of them can be gonadotrope normal. And then if you do the staining, actually, we have a lot of silent pituitary tumor that not categorized as um, non-functioning mm-hmm. just sitting there and autopsy binding. Right. So when we do autopsy binding, actually non-functioning tumor, gonadotropinoma, turn out to be that um, actually higher incidence than proactive and, and the reason that gonadotropinoma not having any type of functioning, uh, just because many times it's just not assembled the whole... Glycoprotein uh, hormone. Mm-hmm. It just have FSH beta, LS beta, or common alpha. Asiatica. So it, it not affected. Very rare if you have testicular mm-hmm. I mean, function or hypergonal So many, many, many uh, tertiary tumor are actually mm-hmm. non functioning. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first... uh, <clears So then> that <throat> really
2: beautiful
1: talk, and, and
2: so elegantly that it sort of
1: makes
2: us as general internists understand this while you're talking to <laughs> but In
1: your experience, where is the balance um, on the front side, the diagnosis side, of the general internist referring at what time the endocrinologist, and then you mentioned lifelong following, what is the role of the primary care general internist in that phase of the illness?
2: So you know I think a a patient like this should be referred to to endocrine for evaluation um, <clears throat> and and really it's the role of the endocrinologist to follow this patient um, I think that the the it's important for the primary care physician to understand it though um, so just as an example one of the um, one of the the problems that I occasionally see is Um, I've got a patient on thyroid hormone for central hypothyroidism, and they come back a year later, and they're really hypothyroid. And they've seen their primary care doctor who's been checking TSHs, the TSH is suppressed, so they think they're on too much um, levothyroxine, and they titrate the dose down. Um, So I think it's really important to to sort of understand um, so that we can work together as a team. But this is definitely a patient who needs to be followed by a, a specialist. Yes, I was wondering if
1: the uh, difference in safety between daily gel testosterone replacement and uh, like the Q two shot has been quantitated, or is more theoretical in terms of uh, you know how much to push patients to spend the extra money.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: uh, Cardiovascular study from a couple years
2: ago. Yeah. So I think. People are more concerned, actually, about the IM IM applications of testosterone and the risk for cardiovascular disease, and I think that, um, you know, historically the IM has been used, but it's really started to get replaced, and most of my patients are on um, the gel, Uh, and it's kind of unusual for someone to still be on the IM unless there's a real reason, like they won't Do the gel, but in terms of the the evidence, yeah, right, yeah. I assume people
0: prefer the gel. Yeah.
2: No, it's it it happens, and I I think it's something that's being studied, and that the little evidence we have would sort of push me towards using the gel more. But I also have patients on on the IM formulation, and it's you know it's just not clear yet. It's really not clear yet. Any other questions? Well, thank you for a great talk and for giving
1: Thank you.